It's always a, a real delight to get to visit with leaders of the church, particularly those leaders of the church who have been literally in the room during papal elections, who have sat in conclaves and voted on the Pope, of course, guided by the Holy Spirit. When we had the chance to sit down with Cardinal Yate Napier last year and really dig into his his career in the church, his life as a seminarian, as a young priest in apartheid, his experiences as a cardinal, a prince of the church, if we go by some of the technical terms, we really got to know an incredible servant of the people of God who has dedicated much of his life, most of his life, to the spreading of the gospel in not always the easiest of places or with the most amenable of crowds, but yet always with a desire and a joy to articulate what is the gospel and why does it matter and how can we live according to it. Cardinal Napier and I have become friends since we had this conversation months and months ago. We've kept in touch. We've emailed back and forth. We've chatted on Twitter. I've sent him periodic updates about the girls. Of course, we've kept in touch during all of the COVID-19 crisis and how we're both doing with different lockdowns and mandates. He's a good son of the church and a real gift to the church. And this conversation, which we're bringing to you today, which we had last year, I think gives a snapshot of why. He's such a great servant of the church and a good person to know. And we're really blessed that we were able to have this conversation because he tells his story of the different places he's been and what he's seen and the universality of the church, specifically how the bigness of the church reveals a lot to us and doesn't just show us how small we are, but shows us the great gift that this church in its bigness is to all of us who are part of it. I think you really enjoyed this conversation as will most people, if they sit down and take the time to listen to it, it is a, a bit of a long conversation, but well worth the time. You can find all of our summer playlist replay conversations over at AveMariaPress.com. Just click up at the top. You can subscribe to the emails. We've got another couple of weeks of shows, as well as a whole new Ave Explorer series launching very soon that we can't wait to show and tell you about, all on Sacred Scripture. But for now, we hope you sit back and enjoy this conversation with Cardinal Napier. This is Katie Prejean McGrady, and this is Ave Explores. I was 19 years old, and I gave my mom and dad a hug goodbye, slung my backpack over my shoulder, and walked through the TSA checkpoint and got on a plane not long after, and headed to Rome. I was a sophomore at the University of Dallas, and the Rome program is the reason I had chosen this school. I wanted to study abroad. I found myself for the next four months literally globetrotting. I spent Thanksgiving in Ireland. I spent 10 days across Germany and Austria, Switzerland. I got to spend 10 days in Greece, spent weeks going all around the Italian countryside, northern Italy, southern Italy, I got to see the world. And I remember when I got home that Christmas, we were sitting at my grandparents' house and I was passing out all the presents that I'd gotten our family from all over the world. I got my grandmother this beautiful tablecloth in Greece and I got my grandfather this hat that said property of the Vatican. I'd bought it from some merchant, you know, on the street in Rome. I got my cousins these really cool wooden toys in Assisi, Italy. I'd gotten my aunts these beautiful scarves in Switzerland. 
And as I'm sitting there regaling my family of all of these incredible things that I've seen and places that I've been, it was my grandmother, God rest her soul, who looked at me and said, well, Katie, tell me about the churches. And so I got to sit there and describe to my grandmother and and pull these pictures out on my computer and, and show her all of these different churches that I'd gotten to go in. You know, she'd spent most of her life in the United States of America She'd been to Puerto Rico with my grandfather a couple of times before, but she'd never been to Greece. She'd never been to Ireland. She'd never seen the churches of Italy. And so getting to show her these pictures and watching her face light up as we we looked at all of these remarkable places of worship. I think back to that conversation very often because she was so enamored with the beauty of Catholic churches outside of the little tiny Catholic church that she'd gone to for years in Tioga, Louisiana. I thought back to all of those churches that I'd gotten to wander into and, and, and walk through and pray in and worship in, the saints' bodies that I'd seen, the conversations with Catholics from around the world, learning the history of these different places of worship. I told her a story about when I was in Germany on All Saints Day, right at the end of our 10-day trip. So, all the students would get 10 days to just travel at will. And and it was a tradition for students who studied in the fall semester to all meet in Munich for Oktoberfest. And uh, so, I'm, I'm there at the end of October, beginning of November. It's All Saints Day. We all went to Mass together because it's a holy day of obligation. And this is a Catholic university, of course. And after Mass was over, just kind of wandering through this gorgeous cathedral, having conversations with my friends, and we saw this sign that said confessions downstairs. And so we followed the confession sign and we, we end up in this basement in this German cathedral and find ourselves in line for confession. And at one point, my friend Eddie, he turned to us and he said, I sure hope this guy's hearing confession in English because none of us know German. And, and sure enough, he did. And we all got to go to confession with this very kind German priest who also happened to speak English. And I think back to how strange a moment that was. But at 19 years old, I found myself in a cathedral in Munich, Germany, night, I was planning on going to the Hofbrauhaus house with all of my friends as tradition dictated among the University of Dallas students. And yet here I was going to confession with this German priest. So were all my friends, such a strange moment. And yet completely and totally normal, right? That as a Catholic, I could go to confession anywhere, as long as I can find somebody to speak my language and there's a priest available, that the Catholic church is big, that the Catholic church is, is everywhere, that you know, if you think about the time zones of this world, that pretty much at every hour of the day, a mass is being said. At every hour of the day, there are Catholics worshiping somewhere, that there are churches no matter where you go, that the, the footprint of Catholicism is all over the world, all over the globe. And what, it, what it's like as Catholics to know that, what it's like as Catholics to be part of that, that's what we're looking at this season on Ave Explorers. The church globally the church around the world, Catholicism around the world. What does the church look like in Ireland? What's happening with the church in India? What struggles are the, the Catholic churches in China facing and how can we help them perhaps, or even just understand the struggle and the plight? What's going on with the church in Africa? How is it vibrant and coming to life? Why should Catholics try to make a pilgrimage to Rome to see the church up close in the Vatican? What's, what's going on with American Catholicism, and why does it feel like there's such a, a strong divide between different camps? How do we as Catholics benefit from understanding, and I'm going to use this phrase a lot, so get ready, the bigness, the, the size, the global experience of Catholicism? 
And how does understanding that the church is this, this global entity, that this church doesn't just exist in one single zip code that I've lived in most of my life, but that the church does exist on a, on a big scale, that the church is universal. How does that grow my faith? How does that help me understand a, a, a better uh, relationship with Christ? How does that help me grow in a better understanding of who Christ is and why the church matters and how I play a part in it and how other people play a part in it too? You know, as with all things with Ave Explorers, we unpack these topics. We have conversations with people that we think you would love to hear from because we want to help you grow in faith. We want to help your your everyday Catholic faith come to life in a new way to explore this topic. And we've got incredible guests this whole season, people literally from across the country that in a strange way, uh, across the world, excuse me, not just the country, but across the world that I've had an amazing opportunity to know people that I've gotten to know in person because I've been to those countries, I've been to those places, or people that I've gotten to know online because that's how we live in 2021. We can get to know people online. Conversations that hopefully answer this question. What's the church like there? What would I know and learn and feel and experience about the Catholic church there where you are? And how does that help me appreciate what Christ said that he will be with us always until the end of the age. He'll be with us in Ireland, with us in England, with us in Rome, with us in India, with us in South Africa, with us in the United States of America, that he will be with us and we can know him there. And that as a church, we can serve and exist in beautiful ways in those places. This series is beginning with a conversation that I am very excited for you to hear. Cardinal Wilfred Napier is the Archbishop of the Archdiocese of Durban, South Africa. And I know Cardinal Napier through Twitter, right? We follow each other. He comments on pictures of my daughters. We chat back and forth from time to time about things that are going on. We had a lovely conversation right at the beginning of the pandemic when he was kind of checking on my family and making sure that we were okay. He's a kind-hearted servant of God, a prince of the church. He's voted in papal conclaves. He serves in the dicastery for economics in the Vatican. He's a man of the church who has traveled the world, went to seminary in Ireland. And getting to talk to him, and it's a quite long conversation, so buckle up, getting to talk to him was an incredible opportunity, a snapshot to hear about the church from the perspective of a cardinal, but to also hear about the church from the perspective of someone who has seen the church in a lot of different places who has served the church in a lot of different ways, and who offers some really beautiful insight into what the church is like in South Africa, what the church is like in the the inner halls of the Vatican, what the church is like for someone who's probably still just considers himself a simple priest, Father Napier, but of course we know him as Cardinal. I hope that this entire conversation kind of gives you the on-ramp for what we're doing this entire season, which is to look at the church from this 10,000-foot view, to see the church in its bigness, but to also recognize the church in its particularity. All of the content that we've created is, of course, going to be available on Ave Maria's website, AveMariaPress.com, and you can follow along. You can click on the free resources button at the top of the website and find all of the Ave Explorers series, but you can also sign up to receive the Catholicism Around the World email straight to your inbox for the next four Wednesdays. We hope you take advantage of that so you see the videos, you see the Facebook Live conversations, you never miss a podcast, you read the articles, you see the social media exclusives. We're so excited to have you joining with us. We can't wait for you to really dive into this series. It's some great things with some amazing people from around the world. So without further ado, we kick this whole season off with this 
enlightening and challenging and very beautiful conversation with Cardinal Wilford Napier of Durban, South Africa. Well, Cardinal, thank you for joining us on Ave Explores. Thank you very much for having me and for taking the initiative. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm a big fan of yours on Twitter. Uh, I I find that that's how Catholics can connect all over the world. It's a wonderful thing. Tell us a little bit about where you are in the world and a little bit about who you are. I think my story began, I grew up on a farm about uh, 300 kilometers from Durban, in the north, in the in the interland, the in, in internal, a farm there. Um, went to school in a little village called Matatiele, served by Franciscans at that time, and um, so the only priests I actually knew were Franciscans. Mm-hmm. And one or two of those priests, the younger ones in particular, made a big impact on me as a young guy coming up to my turning from primary school into secondary school. So, so I suppose about. 14, 15 years of age. And, you know, that's the age, I think, when a lot of impressions are made and, they leave, and they're left on you. Mm-hmm. And this was when I think one or two of the priests really made a big impression on me. So as I went through my secondary schooling, coming up to my final year uh, at school, I was thinking of going for science. I loved the natural sciences, so I was thinking of going for a degree in science. But this nagging thing in the background all the time... Mm-hmm. Why don't you give the priesthood a chance? Then out of the blue, my eldest brother had suddenly decided he wanted to become a Franciscan brother. He had worked Mm -hmm. with the brothers as a a a laborer, um, helping them build a hospital in one of the outlying villages in the Diocese of Coxford. And he wanted to be a brother because he loved the spirit among the brothers and how they were skilled and did their work and so on. So he went over to Ireland for six months. He was in the novitiate. But he was, they had persuaded him, a parish priest had persuaded him, you've got your matric, you've, got, you've graduated, why just go for the priesthood? Why be a brother? Mm-hmm. And of course, he wasn't the studying type, so he didn't last very long. <laughs> six months later, he comes back. Uh, but it was a real boost for me because at one stage, I thought, well, there'll be two of us over there. So it'll mm-hmm. be a good Um, We'll complement each other, support each other. Mm -hmm. But when he came back after six months, then the doubts started setting in. But I remember my mom coming to me one day and she says, Wilfred, what are we going to do now? If you go over there and you don't make it, what are people going to say? (laughs) (laughs) So she took the question to our parish priest and he said, look, we put a notice in in a local Catholic paper. Wilfred is going across to try his vocation as a Franciscan. If he comes back, we just say he tried and he came back. He decided it wasn't for him and he's come back. But as a, our, our family's got a, a streak of obstinacy about us, <laughs> stubbornness, right? I like to call it uh, perseverance. <laughs> yeah, a better way to put and it. <laughs> so I, I found, I found, I found the, the life very congenial, very challenging, but also very congenial. Mm-hmm. And I must say the Irish guys that I joined with, there were 20, 22 of us that, went into the novitiate at that time. Um, I was the first of that, I think I was number eight in seniority. And I was the first one who had just left school and gone directly. The, other, the seven first before me had been working before they decided mm. to try their vocation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then I did my training in Ireland, novitiate in Killarney, right in the south of Ireland. And not a place to do your novitiate, it's too beautiful and too tempting. <laughs> and 
But uh, and then I had three years in Galway at the university there doing philosophy. I didn't do philosophy there. I did um, humanities, mm-hmm. English and Latin were my major subjects. And so I went to Louvain then in Belgium to the Catholic University for philosophy and ended up there doing theology as well. So I was six years in Louvain doing philosophy and theology. Mm-hmm. Came home then, was ordained just 50 years ago this past wow. year on the 25th of July. Congratulations. Thank so, you. so 50 years a priest started out as a, well, not started out, a Franciscan. You still are a Franciscan. What were those yeah. early years yeah. as a young parish priest in South Africa like? I mean, 50 years ago doesn't feel like that long ago, but yet it was a completely different world then. Um, and I mean, you've gone, through, you've gone through so much history, apartheid in yeah. South Africa. But, I mean, what was that like as a young mm-hmm. priest in those early years? You know, there were two things, Katie, that really, um, really touched me a, a, a great deal. And I, I count them as moments of grace. While I was in Ireland, I was so different. I was the only black in the, in the, whole, of, mm-hmm. in the whole of the town of Galway, for instance, at the yeah. university. I, I, I met one or two other black people there. And they were India, Indian origin, uh, mm-hmm. the ones that were there in the medical school. But in the humanities and so on, I was the only black person. And at some stage, I, I was just reflecting deeply about this. And I said, you know, the Irish are different. But because they're different doesn't mean they're superior. Mm. So you've got to deal with them person to person at the same level. And I think that that was, for me, a, a step out of the apartheid mentality, mm. where I always saw myself as one step down from the whites. And then, and the second part of that great grace was when I came back to South Africa, I was ordained, and I was assigned to a parish, a very rural parish. And uh, one Sunday after the Mass, I'd struggled through the language. I didn't know the language all that well, Kosa language. And I'd struggled through that Mass. But anyway, at the end of the Mass, one of the leading ladies in that parish stood up and she said, I want to say something about what a wonderful um, event we have just celebrated. Here is Father So-and-so, and how lovely to have one of our own sons as our priest. That mm-hmm. was so touching. Mm-hmm. And that totally filled in the, the, the same syllogism that I'd used before. Mm-hmm. These people may have different customs, different way of seeing things, but basically we're human beings, so treat them all as human beings. So from that moment on, in any conscious time moments I've had to decide where I stand on things, I've always said I deal with people as they are, as human mm-hmm. beings, not as black or white or otherwise. Those are, the, I would say, the great graces that I received, and I, I am, I'm very grateful for that. Mm-hmm. So, so coming into apartheid South Africa, that was mm-hmm. a real challenge. Everyone yeah. was thinking in compartments. Mm. Tell tell me about that specifically. I mean that history. It's when I think about apartheid, I, I liken it to the civil rights movement in the United States of America. Yeah. I mean, this, this huge turning yeah. of the tide for racial justice and equality. We're reckoning with all of that still to this day in the United States of America. But as yeah. a priest yeah. specifically, how did the, how did the church navigate those conversations? We, navigate all of that. Yeah. We had to. We had to. Um, there was a, quite a few. Uh, I would say. Um, there was a few really important moments. Mm-hmm. And some of those moments were quite early on. In the 
1950s, I think it was, one of the bishops, he was a German uh, of Cape Town, I think he was, Archbishop of Cape, Bishop of Cape Town, because he didn't have archbishops at that time. And he at some stage put out a statement uh, saying that apartheid was wrong, morally wrong. And it, but it wasn't taken up by anybody. It was mm-hmm. just a statement there. But then came the time when more and more blacks became uh, priests and members of religious communities and so on. And I think those in leadership had to take a conscious decision. How do we deal with this particular phenomenon that's now upon us? Mm-hmm. And we got into a a time when, in the 1970s, the synod had been on, what was the synod on? It was about justice and peace anyway. And the bishops had set up a commission, evangelization in our our world today. That was it, Mm -hmm. evangelization. So this one was called Evangelization Today in South Africa. ETSA project and it was well, well advanced how they were planning how they're going to implement it in the different dioceses. And then happened Soweto 76, mm-hmm. the uprising against the use of the enforced teaching of Afrikaans in black schools. And the bishops realized then we can't carry on evangelizing programs when the, the political situation, the area where we were supposed to be doing this, is completely in chaos. So they then had a very, very important meeting at which they drew up a a declaration of intent. And among the declarations was this one. We have to deal with this unique situation in South Africa where 80% of the clergy are white. 80% of the congregations are black. How are we going to balance those two? Mm -hmm. So the decision was taken, and I just joined the bishops' conference at that time, 1978, in June, I was appointed administrator of the diocese where I grew up. And as an administrator, apostolic administrator, I was a member of the bishop's conference. So my very first bishop's conference, we were discussing this thing about Mm -hmm. how do we hold a consultation so that uh, the people and the priests come to start looking at the same problem from the same angle. And it was the best thing that could have happened. Mm. So I went around the diocese in three different centers. And the way I formulated the the, the inquiry was, what's going well in the diocese and needs to continue in your parish and needs to continue? What is not going so well and needs to be beefed up? What's not working at all and must be rejected? And what's missing and needs to be introduced? Mm -hmm. So on the basis of that, we all made our reports. And in August of 1980, there was a consultation, I think it's the widest ranging consultation ever had in, held in the South African church. And after a week of consultation, we decided upon a pastoral plan. Mm. And the, the outline of the pastoral plan was, we want to be a community serving humanity. So it was building community and doing it in the, in the line of justice and peace. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was the real breakthrough as far as the Catholic Church was concerned in dealing with uh, apartheid. One of the other resolutions that came out of that particular meeting in 1977 was that we would change all our institutions. We would stop observing the, the racial distinctions that the government was enforcing on us. 
we would uh, open our schools to everyone, mm. all our institutions to everyone. Of course, that brought about conflicts until all of a sudden the government was saying, look, the Catholics are doing it. It doesn't, it doesn't cause the, the sky <laughs> to fall down. Yeah. So we made a mark in that particular instance, yes. I did not know that, that the church was one of the leaders of that racial reconciliation. That's, and you, I mean, you were on the front lines of that. That's pretty remarkable. How did that affect your yeah. personal faith? I mean, as a, as a young black bishop in a country that was segregated, yeah. moving from segregation into, into unity. Um, I mean, wh- yeah. how did that, how did that affect your personal that faith a, life? It was a big, big challenge, but you know, I, I, I go back to that grace I mentioned earlier mm-hmm. on about the Irish are different but they have to be treated as equals. The mm-hmm. blacks are different, but they must be... You see, I'm in the middle, I'm a colored, so I'm a mixture mm-hmm. of white and black, so mm-hmm. I fit in the middle. And so for me, it was almost a case of you were ready made for this task of, of um, bringing about reconciliation. Another thing I need to add, when I was, I was appointed uh, administrator in 1978, I did two and a half years uh, as administrator, and then I was appointed bishop. And coming up to the preparations for the, the, the day for the bishop, uh, suddenly one of my conferences says to me, by the way, what motto have you chosen? And I said, do I have to have a motto? <laughs> he says, of course you have to have. So I tossed around in my mind, and the thing that came to my mind straight away was Pax et Bonum, Peace mm-hmm. and Goodwill, which is St. Francis's greeting. Mm-hmm. And I took it as that's what I'm going to, uh, so Pax et Bonum is what I chose. It was only about two or three years later. By this stage, I had jumped up in the ladder of the bishop's conference. I was vice president after being a bishop for three years. I was made (laughs) vice president. And I found myself together with Archbishop Dennis Hurley, being involved in all kinds of negotiations on a political, sociopolitical level. And that's when I realized that Pax et Bonum was not just a fancy title, Mm -hmm. motto. It was actually a challenge. You have to work for peace and reconciliation, mm. peace and good. And that's how I, I read my, my life and my vocation as a, as a young bishop. Mm-hmm. So time passes. Pax et Bonum is your anchor. We hit the 90s. May I talk to a, a bit? Oh, yes, please, please. Yes. So, well, my, my next question was, so you, you, I mean, you were a bishop for a number of years, over 20 years, um, with that as your anchor, as your motto, what were what were some of the things you learned along the way? I mean, I, I feel like conversations with bishops, I'm very privileged and I get to have them very frequently, but most people listening don't get to just mm. sit and pick the brain of a bishop. I mean, what, what did you mm. see unfolding in the South African church? What, what did you want Catholics to know day to day that was unique about the South African church? I think the main message was to get people to stop thinking in compartments. Mm. You know, I'm black, therefore this is what I'm going to do. This is, I'm colored, therefore this is what I'm going to do. And I think that was the thrust of, of the pastoral plan, the motto we chose for the pastoral plan, mm-hmm. community serving humanity. So our first thrust was, how do we make these disparate individuals into a community? Mm-hmm. And not just within the, the, the social community where they were, but to bring them across the barriers and come together. So things like diocese and pastoral councils started becoming mixed. Parish pastoral councils became mixed. And so that was, was really one of the, 
The biggest challenges are probably the area where we made the biggest headway. Mm. At that time, um, the Diocese of Rochester, I think, only Newark, Newark Diocese in the United States, had a program called Renew, mm-hmm. which they were promoting. And Archbishop Hurley got to know of this program. And he sent a whole team of people across there to be trained for about six weeks or so mm-hmm. um, in the Renew process and came back here. And that's how the Archdiocese of Durban went about the renewal, which the pastoral plan was trying to put into place. In the rural diocese, we had been exposed to the small Christian community concept of church. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that we use because it was the simplest one to use in rural communities. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the ways in which we got people, you know, we sometimes think that people, the only divisions were between whites and blacks. But among the blacks, there were tribal differences. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. building community meant addressing those other dividing lines as well. Yeah. And when you, you said the buzzword um, that I wanted to get to, there's tribal communities in Africa, and that's a huge element of of the continent yes. and specifically in South Africa. How do the, the tribal communities factor into the life of the church, into the worship, into the liturgy, um, into leadership? How, how do those two things balance there? I think in, in South Africa, we were rather more fortunate perhaps than in, in some of the other African countries in that we had a common enemy in apartheid. Mm. So whether you began belong to a tribe, a different tribe or a different race or a different cultural group, you, you had a common enemy. So you, you virtually leveled out the differences between you and they, they didn't become dividing walls. They were mm-hmm. sort of just little parapets perhaps. And therefore we didn't have quite the same kind of issues as in some of the African countries where a person nominated a bishop from a different tribe would not be accepted in a certain area. Mm. That has happened Mm. not that long ago either. We haven't had that kind of thing. Generally, we accept each other across the lines in Mm. our divisions. But with with the advent of democracy, and especially with the drive for we are now our own bosses, that has tended to come in a little bit more um, so we talk about transformation of, of society, transformation of the economy, transformation of education. But in actual fact, what it means is um, introducing blacks where there were no blacks before, mm-hmm. which is not a real transformation, taking a thing from an inferior state to a higher state. And uh, that would be my argument with using the word transformation. Mm. If you say Africanization, well and good, then you know what you're getting at. Mm-hmm. But when you say transformation and you're taking it in that direction, there used to be a black, white in charge, there has to be a black now. That's not transformation because if the person hasn't got the skills, they're going to mm-hmm. take the thing down rather than lift it up. Mm-hmm. So it has been a challenge. It has really been a challenge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But also the church in Africa mm-hmm. was the African Synod yes. in 1994. Yes. Um, it came just at the right time. I mean, the first election, democratic election, was held that year. Mm. We happened to be about uh, four or five bishops from South Africa in Rome for the synod. So we had to go to the embassy to, to do our voting. Mm-hmm. And what, what an eye-opener that was. Yeah. The officials, you couldn't have met a group of people who you'd be, you'd be more proud of because of the way they handled everyone as equals. It was really a, a most impressive 
and a sign of hope for the future. Yeah. 94, that synod on Africa, I think was, uh, for many of us, a turning point mm-hmm. in regard to the way that we see the church in Africa. Not an appendage from Europe, dependent on Europe for everything, including right. its thinking through problems, but certainly from that occasion, I think it was uh, the, the birth of the African church, thinking for itself, planning for itself, working for itself. In, co- in collaboration with uh, people who are helping from overseas, of course. Yeah. I hope you are enjoying this conversation with Cardinal Napier of the Archdiocese of Durban, South Africa. In the next half of the show, we'll dig in a little more to what the church looks like globally from his perspective working in and with the Vatican. You can find all of our content on Catholicism around the world, this new series that is beginning over at AveMariaPress.com and sign up for the weekly emails so you don't miss any of the content we're creating for you. All right, back to the show. What do you think the defining feature of the African church is, uh, the thing that is most noticeable and, and beautiful about the African church? I would say the sense of community. Hmm. Now, we might, we might take that thing very lightly, but for instance, a service, a mass without singing is inconceivable among the Africans. Mm-hmm. Because if you're worshiping, you're praising, you're rejoicing, you have to sing. Mm-hmm. Even if you're mourning, you have to sing. You know? So everything where you come together as a community is accompanied by singing in one form or another. And that would be one feature of the African church, I think. A second one would be the, the, the struggle to reconcile what African custom says and what Christian religion says. Mm-hmm. There are certain areas where there's a crossing of the lines and you're not, it's not always sure which way, which one is going to take predominance in, in that, uh, that uh, contest. So, in, 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 for instance, in terms of marriage, there are, let's say, possibly four different things that have to happen before uh, when a marriage takes place. There's the traditional one where the family of the girl, of the boy, will go and ask the family of the girl for the the marriage to take place. Then there would be the exchange of gifts, the nobol or the bride price. Mm -hmm. Then there would be the arrangement of the wedding. One part of the ceremony takes place in the boy's place, one part takes place in the girl's place, and so on. Then there's the registration of this wedding, this marriage, in the civil courts, and then in the church. So you've got three different uh, concepts of marriage Mm-hmm. that have to be brought together somehow. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that uh, is, is really a challenge to the church. Yeah. To balance. I think when we had the synod on, on uh, 2014, 2015 on the family, and mm. the marriage question was coming up as well, and the whole question of what do you do with people who have divorced and remarried, how do you deal with them, we added, the Africans added to that one and said, okay, while you're thinking about that, what about people who are not marrying, not because they don't want to, but because custom holds them back from doing it. Mm. So they cannot, they won't come and do the complete church marriage until the bride price has been completed to a level that's satisfactory. Yeah. So it's not that they don't want to get married, but they're postponing that final marriage ceremony 
until all the other preliminaries have been done. Mm -hmm. So that cultural thing and how we relate that to the faith, the teaching of the faith, one of the big challenges we are still going to be facing in Africa for quite a while. For some time. Well, and, and I mean, you go to Rome quite a lot as a cardinal, as a bishop involved in these synods. You you really get the the gift of seeing the church from a, a 10,000 foot view, the bigness of the universal church. Well, most people don't get that. Most people don't have the opportunity yeah. of really worshiping beyond their own parish or just within their own country. What would you encourage listeners to? to think about or to know? I mean, every time you go to Rome, what are you struck by? And having these conversations globally, what have you learned? I think the universality and the, the, the Catholic nature of the church is one of the things that, that jumps out at me. For instance, um, as you know, I'm on the Council for the Economy. Mm -hmm. And that has meant every three months, practically, I was in Rome. Uh, in the course of until COVID came and put a, a full stop to that. Yes. <laughs> Haven't been to Rome and I don't think I have a hope of going to Rome in the near future. Anytime either. soon. Yeah. But it was it was a, a really wonderful experience because you got um guys high 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 powered people like John Kyle who was with uh, mobile Exxon Mobil, I think uh, an executive position there. Mm -hmm. He's on the Council for the Economy, a professor of economics from Spain. A mm. bank, um, bank of Malta official. This idea. So it was just a variety of people, and yet all pulling together, working for the benefit of the church to get the church's uh, uh, economics and finances mm. on a level where we could say they meet the best practices that are going. And believe me, we're very close to that point now when we can say. Anyone can come and look at our books and we've got uh, mm -hmm. where we would be able to answer all the questions. Mm -hmm. Still a few that need to be looked at, but uh, right. I'd say by large, it's a very different animal from what it was five, mm -hmm. six years ago. Mm -hmm. One of the things that has struck me is we tend to see China in a very different way from the way the Chinese people see it. Mm. For instance, that cardinal would never refer to... Um, communist China. He'd always mm. talk about mm. mainland China. Yeah, he's in Hong, but he'd talk about mainland China. Mm -hmm. He would never talk about the patriotic church. He'd talk about the church on mainland China. Mm. Now, there's a subtle difference there, uh, and but it's a very meaningful difference in the sense that you're acknowledging that it's Catholic. It may yeah. have some particular characteristics, but it's Catholic, and as that. Because it's Catholic, we are we are this part of the same body. Yeah. At the one synod, I think it was in 2015, there were two bishops from China, and I think they were the ones who were approved by the government. Mm -hmm. But in speaking to them and listening to them talking about China, you wouldn't see they they wouldn't certainly see themselves as an as the official church and the others are underground church. They wouldn't mm -hmm. see it that way. Really? So it's a difference of, of perspective and um, subtle, I would say, in very many ways, very subtle difference. Mm -hmm. But the language used, I think, indicates how people see themselves. Yeah. And they certainly see themselves as Catholic rather than government-approved Chinese. Yeah, Catholic. that's interesting. I, I never would have thought, I mean, obviously somebody would not think of their own country necessarily in a negative light, um, yeah, yeah. Or, or even necessarily think of their country as the one that's causing the conflict or being in conflict. 
Um, yes, yes. My roommate at the pre-synod is from mainland China and she, that's how she referred to it. Um, yeah. and, and talking to her in conversations about, well, what does worship look like there? And do you have access to confirmation retreats the same way we do in the States, which are quite popular? You spend all this time in Rome. You were appointed a cardinal in the early 2000s by now Saint John Paul II. Tell me a little bit about that. What? Yes. Who, how does that phone call happen? Does the Pope just call you up and say, I'd like you to be a cardinal? Um, <laughs> what, what was that experience like? <laughs> in my case, it was very, very unusual because... We came up to the we were, we were, the bishops were meeting at that time in Pretoria, and um, the announcement was made that the Pope would be appointing new cardinals within the next uh, couple of weeks. And I know that a lot of people, because I had been so active going over for synods, various synods in Rome, a lot of my confreres and the bishops were saying, "Oh, you'll be among the next lot that's uh, nominated for cardinal." I said, no, don't, don't count your chickens. Anyway, the first lot, of, the first batch was, was nominated, was announced, and my name wasn't there. And I relaxed. I said, you see, guys, I told you there's not a chance. And then about uh, a week later, I get a phone call uh, from the nuncio. And the nuncio's first question was very interesting. He says, um, is that Archbishop Napier? I said, yes, it is. He says... Uh, are you alone? I said, yes. He says, can you speak? I said, yes, I can. And then he said to me, I just want to tell you that the Pope has nominated you to be a cardinal and there's six more to the, how many were there before? I think there were 36. There were 36 already nominated and there were another six added to this list. Mm. And I just lost my, I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> lost all my manners. I said, what? He said, yes, the Pope has nominated you to be a cardinal. I said, I can't believe it. And then I said, what do I have to do the next mm -hmm. step? No, you've got to do this and this and this and this. And But they're going to do this and they'll arrange this. And so it was very, very quick. I had three weeks in which to prepare. Mm. And that was quite something because all the family wanted to come across as well. Of course, of course. And that had to be quite a bit of coordination had to go into that. But it was a wonderful, wonderful experience uh, going across there. Some of the chancery staff here went with us as well, mm -hmm. and then some of my family. And connections from family friends as well. Right. So so you become cardinal, and then just a few years after that, you get to vote in your first conclave. Oh, that, I mean, that was what's, something. What's that like to be... In, I mean, twice now. You voted on two popes. Yeah. What What's that That's like awesome. to be in the Sistine Chapel with your brother cardinals, the weight of the world but, upon your shoulders, everybody watching? The first thing was, uh, the, when we went for the first one, I recall getting there for the John Paul's funeral. That was the first objective, must mm -hmm. be there for the funeral. And that was something very special. Uh, cardinal Ratzinger, as he was then, led the, as, pref as prefect of the Cardinal College of Cardinals. He led all that, that celebration of John Paul's um, funeral mass. And then he, he preached such a wonderful homily. I think it made up the minds of quite a few people that this mm -hmm. guy would be certainly what we need mm -hmm. in terms of a spiritual approach to leadership in the Catholic Church. But when we got into the, the, um, uh, the discussions about it, no, no, Ratzinger must be stopped at all costs, was one, one field was saying that. And another one saying, who are we going for this one? And so there was a quite a bit of variety. Now, 
Of the 117 cardinals that were eligible, uh, two couldn't make it at all for health reasons. And 115, only two of those had been at a conclave before. So 113 oh, wow. of us had never any acquaintance with the conflict whatsoever. So we spent the about two weeks, I think, we were in Rome for the preliminaries after the funeral of Pope John Paul II. And we were preparing ourselves for this conclave. So we had to be educated about how a conclave goes, what you do and what mm -hmm. you can do, what you can't do. And, so. and as a result, there was very, very little time to actually describe the situations back in your home place so that the Pope would know what kind of church he's going to be leading. These are mm -hmm. the problems in Africa. These are in Asia. These are in America and so on. And I think we all, in a, in a kind of a almost implicit way, asked uh, the Pope in the, in the presentations we were making to look at the whole question of renewing the church. Mm -hmm. But it was nothing specific, nothing definite. When Pope um, um, Benedict resigned, we also went across then for to say farewell to him because he was a very, you know, the media made him out to be a very unpopular person. But mm -hmm. if you got to know Benedict, he was, he was a very, very gracious, very humble person. And he was very well liked, I think, by almost all the cardinals. Mm. They might not have liked him when he was head of the doctrine of the faith, <laughs> but they certainly liked him as Pope. And anyway, when he resigned then, we were faced with a different reality now. 60 out of the 115, it's interesting how the numbers were exactly the same. Mm -hmm. 117 were eligible, two couldn't make it, right. 115 took part in it. And I'd say... 60 of those had been at the previous conclave. So there was no need to take us through primary school and right, grade right. school and so on, <laughs> all the way up. So uh, we spent a lot of time on the actual needs that the Pope would have to address. And the one message that was coming across, he must renew the church and where necessary, he must reform the church. Mm. So when Pope Francis came on the scene as Pope, he knew very clearly he had the support of the majority of the cardinals in that conclave. We've got to get the church renewed. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, the Holy Spirit has been working very hard with us. Look at how, he, how you, if you're going to do something like renewing the church or renewing society, where do you start? You start at the basis. And the basis is the family. Mm -hmm. So it was only logical that the first synods should be about the marriage and the family. You want to make an impact on society, you've got to have good, strong parishes. You want good, strong parishes, you have to have good, strong families. You want good, strong families, you have to have good, strong marriages. Mm -hmm. And of course, crucial question, when you have good, strong marriages, you've got to do a good lot of preparation yet. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you think Pope Francis's agenda, and I even hesitate to use that word, yeah. of renewing the church is working? And I mean, of course, I'm asking an opinion, but like yeah. as a cardinal boots on the ground in the church yeah. in South Africa, I mean, I know what people in America say, and it's very polarized mm. over here. Mm. But as very, this very. renewal has been happening, I mean, do you think it's working? Do you think the church is coming back to life? Uh, that's a difficult one to say whether it's having an impact on the life side of things. I uh, Let me put it on two different levels. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm, I'm going to start with the, the financial one because I think oh, that's where we can see the concrete evidence of that there. Mm -hmm. When I was uh, appointed a cardinal, I was appointed also to what was called at that time uh, the Council of Cardinals for the study of the organizational and financial problems of the Vatican. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a long title. Yeah. And I discovered, I discovered that the longer the title in Rome, the less you are expected to do. <laughs> you know. I, came to that I came to that conclusion by the fact that there was so little that we actually were doing in this council. 19 cardinals, or 15 cardinals, 15 cardinals. And we met once a year, looked at what was presented to us as budgets and financial statements, but nobody could make head nor tail of them. Mm -hmm. By the third year, we were all shouting for, let's have a budget, let's have a budget, let's have a budget. And eventually, one of the Italian cardinals said to us, you know, you've got to realize here at the Vatican, we do not have the culture. Now, note the words. We do not have the culture of budgeting or financial statements mm. the way that you're talking about. Now, that was quite something. What they meant was each department might have its own way of doing it, but there was no overall right. budget and, 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 um, and financial state, consolidated financial statements. Now, if you want to know as it worked, we are now at the point where just in the last couple of weeks, we've been present, looking at the budget that's been presented for this year, this past mm -hmm. year. We're still a year behind, but we're moving into the next, uh, mm -hmm. next uh, as well. And I would say that most of the departments now are following the same structures when it comes to uh, budgeting and financial reporting. Mm. Take that to the other levels, and I think you'll find similar steps have been taken in regard to renewing the different departments at the Vatican. Yeah. And I think of evangelization, the uh, Propaganda Fide, the Congregation for the Evangelization of Peoples. I think that they, it's a huge one. It's a huge one. And, but I think they're they are making an impact on the way that they're passing on the message that churches out in the mission areas need to be coming in line with what Vatican II dreamed was the way the church should become. Mm -hmm. Which is what, I guess that's my last question. I mean, the church that yeah. you see today in your travels in South Africa, uh, the, the church that my kids are growing up in, I mean, what, what's your hope for our church? What, what's, your, what's your dream for the Catholic who hears this, who just, who wants to know Jesus more? I mean, what, what would your, your fatherly words be to us? Let me answer you in, with, with an example of what happened at, at one of the synods. I happened to be appointed to lead one of the language group discussion groups. And in that group, we had two bishops from India, one from the Malabar rite and the other one from the rite. We were having a discussion about marriage and the family and what have you. And I think it was just family life. And there was a litany of, of uh, reports about how young people were leaving the church once they were confirmed. Mm -hmm. And it was one after the other. It was just, uh, the, the story was just one litany of woe. And I noticed that these two Indian guys were not participating at all in the discussion. So during the tea break, I went to them, thinking that maybe something I had said as chair, I intend to have a, a mouth that speaks before the mind uh, decides what it's going to say. 
So I thought I might have offended them in something I had said. So I went to them. I said, guys, I noticed you're not participating in the discussion. Uh, is there something wrong? They said, we don't have that problem. And I said, how's that? He said, well, in our rites, we baptize, we confirm, and we give the Eucharist in the form of a drop of the precious blood to the infant when it's baptized. So when a child begins its for Catholic for its Christian formation, it's a seamless garment right up until they get prepared for marriage. Mm. So there's no learning for a sacrament. Then you fall away for a while. Then you get learned for the next one, fall away. And then it's one seamless garment all the way. So we don't have that problem. Mm. That would be my dream that somehow parents would start seeing their role as that seamless garment, taking their children through from one stage to the other without saying, now you're going to learn for confirmation, now you're going mm-hmm. to learn for uh, First Communion, now for First Confession. But somehow in a seamless way, they will get their whole formation in their faith done that way. I think that's a beautiful hope. I, um, do you want to you mm. come to Lake Charles and confirm my girls uh, before, they, <laughs> before they fall away? You're welcome anytime. Um, Cardinal, thank you so much for I, your time. I think, I, think, I think there's a lot more hope than you probably see for yourself. Uh, mm. You know, you tend to see when you're in your own country, you tend to see the, 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 the problems uh, exaggerated by the the urgency and your wanting to make them go away, you mm-hmm. know, you 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 fail to see some of the real positives yeah. that, that are happening. Now I'm impressed. I I do have, I follow quite a lot of uh, people on podcasts and stuff like that, and I'm really impressed by what I hear about focus. I don't know mm-hmm. what the heck focus is, but everyone <laughs> seems to talk about focus. And my focus experience did this to me. Yeah. I was in a campus campus chaplain, mm-hmm. and and that kind of thing. There's a lot more going on in your church than possibly you realize. Yeah. We would we are envious. I'm envious when I hear what's going on, and you've got universities that are gearing themselves towards accommodating people for that kind of ministry. Mm-hmm. So I, I I I see much more hope than what we read in Twitter and all that. I think yeah. we've got the the real. Um, what did I say? Um, the people that have really put themselves into, into, into pigeonholes are on Twitter and, and the social media, whereas the ordinary Catholic on the ground, and especially the younger ones, I think are looking for a much deeper meaning of their faith and are making the effort to get that meaning across to themselves first and then to their own generation, their peers. Amen. Well, Cardinal, thank you for your time. We will put your Twitter in our show notes so that folks can follow you. Um, it was it was great to visit with you. Thank you again. Thank you very much. Thank you. And lovely. Thank you very much for bringing the girls on this. On oh, the of course. Absolutely. Bye. Absolutely. I think it's pretty remarkable, almost amusing that I was even able to snag this interview with Cardinal Napier. Some of the circumstances uh, surrounding making sure he had power, they're working on the power grid where he is. And so a couple of different times we had to reschedule. But truthfully, it, it, it all kind of came about because I sent him a Twitter message and said, hey, Cardinal, would you be interested in joining me on my podcast? Would you be interested in having a conversation about the church? And he said, yes. I think we are living at a moment and at a time in human history when we have never been more connected. And we could have 
countless conversations, endless hours of conversation about how that's either good or bad, depending on who you're connecting with and what you're consuming. But I think in this instance, it was a good connection. And I think in the instance of Catholics being able to meet, to converse, to share ideas, to even see how someone else worships across the world, what culture looks like in India, how the church is thriving in Ireland, what some of the challenges the church is facing in Canada, those things that that maybe we don't really think about but are worth pondering. I think the conversations that we are having in this season of Ave Explorers will show you, they've definitely illuminated to me, the goodness of the bigness, to use that term again, of Catholicism to see how big the church is, to appreciate its universality, to understand how we fit into that universality. That as we think about how big and diverse and different the church is across the world, around the globe, we actually see our place in the church better. How we fit into the great story that is the body of Christ. 